Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This is my podcast. It is a production of 3200 Stories, a, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Uh, if you want to see me do stand-up comedy, you can see me every Friday at the Hemlock Tavern with The Business. So please check that out. Uh, we're really excited to be in our new home at the Hemlock. Um, I'm really also very psyched about uh, this interview. It's with Tom Amiano um, in the event that you are not in San Francisco and don't know who Tom is. He is uh, my state legislator. He's my representative in the California State Assembly. He's coming to the end of his term. Uh, and before that, he was uh, on the Board of Supervisors for more than 10 years and was a great progressive leader on the board. And before that, he was the school, on the school board and had this a, pr- a pretty um, incredible record of legislative accomplishment uh, uh, in each of these settings, minimum wage laws, living wage laws, expansions of health care, uh, every kind of social justice legislation. He's, he's n- uh, not only thought of it, but passed, passed the laws. So he's a, a great leader. Um, but before all of that, he was a comedian. And um, we talk about his time doing stand-up comedy. He was uh, active, an activist in the orbit of Harvey Milk, and, and I believe uh, knew Harvey and was influenced by him, and, uh, and became a comedian and was a comedian and activist until his politics sort of ate into his stand-up time um, uh, as, as an elected official. But, uh, so we talk about that history. Um, uh, and I first met him in 1998 when he was running for supervisor. Uh, I volunteered in his campaign. Um, and then in 99, I was working as a car messenger and we were trying to organize a union of biking car messengers. And every day we had, uh, uh, or not every day, every year we had a rally, um, on October 9th, 10, nine day which is uh, radio talk for, I didn't hear you, like 10-4 is I heard you, 10-9 is I didn't hear you. Um, and so on 10-9, October 9th every year, we'd have a rally uh, at Market and Sansom at the wall where messengers hung out, where we'd shut off our radios for an hour. And uh, Tom came to speak at our rally on October 9th, 1999, and announced that he was running a writing campaign for mayor against Willie Brown. Um, and... This is at the height of the first dot-com boom and that wave of gentrification and artists and getting evicted left and right and uh, uh, immigrants and working class people and businesses are being shut down. It's, it's really intense. And uh, that campaign galvanized uh, an incredible uprising. It was like this convergence of, of excitement. It was a movement moment. People couldn't stop talking about it. And he lost. He came close, but he lost. Uh, but... People who were uh, drawn into that campaign went on to run for supervisor in district elections that year um, and win. And that was the who was the progressive majority on the board of supervisors for the next ten years in San Francisco. So it was really a pivotal moment. Um, and I was there at the beginning of it and volunteered on that campaign too. Um, so let's go to our interview with Tom Amiano. But before we do, I found a stand-up clip of him. Uh, there's no date on the clip. Uh, I would place it between 1984 and 1988. Uh, he's talking about Diane Feinstein to give it some context. He's referring to the baths. Uh, so he's talking about the early days of the AIDS crisis um, and when uh, uh, there, there's a public health response to the bathhouses, which are where uh, gay men are going to uh, have a lot of sex. And it's believed that that's a 
big contributor to the spread of uh, AIDS. So <laughs> that's uh, we're gonna, we'll listen to some Tom doing stand-up in the late 80s and then go straight into the interview. Here's the king and queen of the San Francisco progressive movement, legislator, stand-up comedian, Tom Amiano. Our mayor, Diane Feinstein. <laughs> she had a press conference in April. There she was with her basic Planet of the Apes hairdo. said she was not going to send cops to the bands. She was going to send like restaurant health inspectors. I thought, what are they going to do? Go there and go, put that weenie away. It's uncooked. <laughs> then a little later on, she said, okay, I'm going to send cops, but I'm going to send plain clothes cops to the bands. I thought, what the hell is plain clothes at the bands? Lipstick, no gloss, a towel? <laughs> I met him. I have this fantasy, you know, this big burly cop goes into the bass and this queen goes, stop or I'll shoot. <laughs> Somebody asked me if, if, if Diane Feinstein was homophobic. I said, you know, I'm not sure, but the other day she was on an elevator with the lesbian police commissioner and when the doors opened, someone said, going down. She said, no, 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 just talking, just talking. <laughs> Tom Amiano, good morning. Yes. We're sitting on the street in our, in our neighborhood, Mission Street. How long have you lived in this area? Well, since 73. And there's been, there's been some changes. Yeah, the Ice Age subsided. <laughs> uh-huh. And the first humanoid forms uh, developed out there on Cortland. And the, so I felt, uh, well, you know, obviously real estate, real estate, real estate. So, you know, a $27,000 house in the 70s is... Now a million too, um, so it's emblematic of of what's happening in San Francisco and in other places as well. You know, where desirable, undesirable neighborhoods become desirable because of space. And I also think there's some uh, romanticizing of the in quotes bohemian life. I think when in the 70s we used to say, call it um, downwardly mobile. Right. So even though you had privilege, you would you know, live together in a co-op and pretend you never had enough food and all that. And what was the neighborhood like when you moved into it? You know, it was, it was fairly friendly. I think the, um, and hippie, um, the, uh, gosh, what was the, uh, the mime troupe people were across the street for a while. They, I think they had a co-op. Mike Nolan, you know, he still lives in Bernal. And uh, something happened called face loans. Uh, we always thought it was very queer face. You know, that's what a big queen would name <laughs> like a financial face. Um, and some people were very smart uh, and they took those because it was a downtrodden area, supposedly, uh, uh, almost redlined uh, in those days. And, um, you know, they uh, redid their little Vicks and now, you know, they're very nice and they, they have some security. Uh, we were denied. I was in a couple with both uh, teachers so we were denied a loan the first time because um, it was two men or some some such silliness. Wow. Uh, so it took a while to get the loan, and then um, 
that worked out. The, the, the darkest part of the hill, I think, uh, was Cortland at that time. It really felt um, more than sketchy. That's a real estate term. Where I live in Sacramento, they told me it was a sketchy area, and there's a really nice black guy in a wheelchair, you know, but it's a real estate. So, but CD, it, it was, edgy. yeah, it was much more than that. And, uh, you know, I think that it had undergone some economic changes, and it felt a little dangerous on, on the street, really, particularly for a gay man. So, that's a big change, you know. You know, as always, the change brings some good because it makes you feel safer or this or that or things are prettier. Uh, but, you know, the sacrifice is um, losing the diversity and becoming almost a gated community in a sense, you know, not literally, but right. who yeah. knows? Who knows? What did I see around your house the other day? Yeah, right. <laughs> a moat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we could we could just uh, as a as an employment program hire uh, you know some artillery, uh, some castle I'm guards. I'm helping the poor. I am. I'm uh, helping the poor. So, and I wanted to ask you, where did your politics come from? You know, it's hard to really identify it. I mean, uh, you know, working class class values always seem to shape people's politics. Do, uh, uh, you do know. people still talk about class in America? Well, that's another big problem. You should America. What about Sacramento, the land that ta that time forgot? God, there's you bring it up, they don't know what you're talking about. So, or they, they're in denial about it. Um, so I don't know, maybe it was that New Jersey Italian. You know, we were, you know, fairly um, boisterous as a family. And uh, both parents were pretty funny. Although a lot of times I don't think, particularly Terry's my mother, she thought it was funny, but she was hysterical. She could be very withering in her comments. And, um, and he was good. He had a really dry, dry, dry humor. So we always had a lot of, you know, things going on that were funny and at the dinner table and things like that. But they were basically, I don't think they identified with any particular party. You know, they were poor. Um, I thought what they did see through, which was what made everything funny, was the hypocrisy. Because I think that they knew that they were viewed as being... Um, there goes a Google bus. There goes a Google bus. Oh, my God. That's better than Viagra. <laughs> that's what the community used for. So, I don't know. They they challenged a lot of, of stuff, and I think I just picked that up. Yeah. And then uh, being a, a queer, you know, is red meat on the savannah, even in Catholic school. And, um, you know, you really had to develop some defenses. And um, I think the verbal for me came naturally. And I have to say, the nuns, the poor oppressed nuns who the church never takes care of, um, as narrow as they were and as corporal punishment as they were. I think there was a sense of values we've got, community. You know, I didn't buy into all the, you know, the voodoo of the Catholic Church. Oh, I'm watching the Borgias on Netflix. Oh, it's yeah. fabulous. It is so evil and tacky. Just like... Uh, so, and then maybe just, it's in the DNA, I don't know. So a few minutes into the interview with, uh, where Tom and I are talking, we're sitting on a bench in front of Cafe St. George in our neighborhood. It's on Mission Street. And uh, he jumped up and ran back into the cafe to get some coffee or something. And so he, we, the interview stopped for a few minutes. But he had a bunch of thoughts and came back with new ideas. That he, so that's why he comes back in midstream here. I, I was thinking in there about what informs your 
worldview and your politics. I think, um, you know, I was like a weird little kid and I had, um, I had to wear an eye patch from the first grade to the sixth grade or fifth grade. And uh, that was very, uh, you know, awkward because you attracted attention in a way you didn't want it, you know, either pity or mockery and oh my God. So, but I always felt that that was unjust, you know, and it was the same around other characteristics. I thought, you know, so maybe that's where a lot of it comes from. Hey, I know I'm okay, but I'm getting all this shit. And uh, maybe that, you know, then transferred over to other things that the class issues, the oppression of people because they were different. You know, who knows, you know. A cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> right. Sinapa uh, <laughs> un cock. <laughs> so, and uh, how did you get into stand-up? I think I always was frustrated. You know, I was the kid who uh, watched the little late-night TV in those days, black and white with the little snow, Steve Allen, Sid Caesar, uh, all that just, just appealed to me. And, you know, my family did respond. But, you know, if you said something funny, they would respond. So in a way, that was supportive. And um, I do remember liking to perform. I know that's shocking to people. You know, and I would sing One Meatball. That was a song very popular in the 40s for the family at gatherings. Or uh, one time I got dressed up in drag, and I did a little drag number for them. Uh, I don't, I think they were somewhat, <laughs> you know, worried about the future when that happened. Uh, and I did a lot of talking to myself. I like talking to myself. In fact, I still do it. You'll see me, you know, walking up the street, talking to myself. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to be noticed, I imagine. And I really did like the commentary part. And it was a way to get back, I think, you know, um, for all of life's little, uh, challenges and uh but i waited a long time because of the gay issue um it was pretty hard to deny that i was gay by just by mannerisms present presentation you know like the baboon you know presents himself with the red bottom well you know there i am um but i tried it and uh, it was very difficult in the beginning we went to the holy city zoo and you know a fag telling fag jokes it, it was not a warm and fuzzy relationship um and about what year is that you know shit i can't remember i think you know maybe uh at 80 80 uh -huh. something like that uh you know joan rivers was big it's a big comedy industry here in those days and the zoo was hot you know robin williams would always you know come down from the sky you know like uh <clears throat> he he tends to do um and um you know they had open mic and that was the only open mic that i knew uh you know I, don't, I can't remember what, what... The other was getting big, too. A lot of homophobia uh, with the... Um, the other cafe. The other cafe, yeah. They still deny it, but, you know, they didn't hire anybody out. And um, What are you going to do? It's, it's my lens on that history. So, that's that, you know, the Valencia Rose kind of, you know, sprung from that... Uh, like that, as Ron Lanza, God love him, said, you know, hey, kids, let's have a show. I mean, really, it was like that. Um and so it was a great gift to be able to do it. Even when I bombed or people were critical or, or whatever, I just felt right at home and nervous. And the gay thing became a problem for the mainstream clubs. Um, but we could still get gigs, you know, not make a living really, but I'd still get gigs. And you were working it as a teacher at the same time? Yeah, but then I went uh, like to part-time uh -huh. so that I could travel a little more and... and I'd write a little better and all that. We were in um, 
I think it was 84. Gosh. Anyway, it's a, a comedy competition. It was this big thing here. And uh, I really wanted to be in it. And I, we got chosen. It's, you know, a big pool of people. And then you travel around and you get points and everything. And um, there were some pretty hairy times. You know, can imagine Chuck E. Cheese. Had a com- no, it was Tommy T's by Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> that, and, you know, people really did take quaaludes in those days and all that stuff. And uh, they would give such shit to the, uh, you know, the, sometimes the comedy crowds were like, you know, a little uh, doofusy, uh, especially late at night. And they would get shit to the stray comics, never mind. And women, oh, my God. So uh, there I went up, you know, to do my, my thing and, uh, hey, faggot, get off the stage and all that. And so I made a routine of that. What else do comics do? I made a routine. Hey, faggot, get off the stage. And it was my boyfriend. You know? <laughs> so the, the most dangerous thing that ever happened was in um, Rooster Teeth Feathers. And they had their comedy night, and it was brutal. It was really brutal. And my poor lover at the time, Tim, you know, he was the bag man. And uh, I could always tell he was nervous because he uh, squeezed the middle of his forehead and he had that stigmata thing. (laughs) And I looked out and they, you know, it was bad. I couldn't even do my routine. Uh, They were starting to throw things. So, you know, we beat it. We got out of there so fast. And um, Tim said, we just can't do this anymore. And I said, you know what, honey? We can't do it anymore, but I can do it. I don't want to subject you to this, but I'm, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And so then things progressed, you know, with, with the Valencia Rose and people getting attention and uh, some going on, you know, and doing re- very well. Why, why do you think, what was so compelling to you about comedy that you wanted to keep going despite that level? Of- I think it worked for me, you know, and um, actually some of the reason I was there was the exact reason that they didn't want me to be there. And I think that was part of it, too. And, you know, I, you also knew that you could create safe places so you could do it. I mean, you had to take the initiative. You couldn't wait for the comedy club owners. There was a, uh, another thing. This will be controversial. I'm going to say it anyway because they always deny it. But there was a TV show, uh, KQED, Comedy Tonight. Right. And I almost, I swear to God, I almost begged. I would have done anything. But they never hired me. And they would say things like, oh, yeah, uh, but look, we had Kate Clinton on. Well, Kate Clinton's line was, hi, thanks for coming out. And then that was it. And then, you know, uh, uh, Marga, uh, they would hire Marga. She wouldn't do gay material. I'm not judging. I'm just saying they would use that. Well, see, we have Marga. But, you know, the whole fucking point was, let me be who I am. That's how I'm the funniest. So, and well, you know, we have to show this show in Texas. <laughs> Right. But, you know, now Rooster Teeth Feathers has a gay comedy night. So everything changes. The world changes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is something about, you know, like, uh, there, there's a, the, about coming home, you know, feeling like you're finally at home as a comedian. Like, like I, I felt like when I became a comedian and was part of the world of comedians was the first time in my life I didn't feel crazy half yeah. the time. Yeah, because you saw it. And some of them really are crazy. You've met them. Yeah. <laughs> and so who was who was around in the scene when you were doing You mean a lot? The, the, the straighties? Well, I mean, Everybody? You, you, you've, you've pulled, talked my ear off Jay in Dornacker. the past. Jay About the closet cases in the, in the oh, comedy scene. Oh, yeah. The, you know, the five women at the time were, were all in the closet. Uh, uh, Marsha Warfield. Uh, gosh, I don't know what happened to her. There was one with a very slow delivery... I think her name might have been Jane or Margaret. Anyway, oh, Margaret Smith. Yeah, she was a... Yeah, well, all right. And then um, 
Rose, uh, Roseanne, not Roseanne, the other one, Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. And there is two, 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 you know, it's like interesting that they were, oh, Paula Poundstone. So some of the closet ones were very obnoxious. Uh, Paula Poundstone wouldn't even talk to you. And then there was a guy named Barry Sobel at the time, a little bit like you, but not really. And I mean, girl, his wrists were so, it was so obvious. And he was really mean because uh, I made them nervous that I was out, you know. Um, and then, the, you know, Bobby, the ones that were making it were like Bobby Slayton and Bob Goldwaith, um, things like that. They're I'm trying to remember some of the women. Well, you know, Jane Dornacker was a very popular figure here in, in San Francisco, and she opened a lot of doors for the openly gay comics. It's just a wonderful, wonderful right. idiosyncratic woman, you know, who who unfortunately died in, in, in a helicopter crash, of and, all things. And Ellen DeGeneres was around here then? She was, yes. Now, there was a, a bifurcated. It's like everybody knew, and but no, but she never said it. And then um, she was mocked a lot, too, which I didn't like. But then the, time, the times that I saw her, and actually it was only twice was Comedy Day in the park, and it was in that band shell. And, you know, everybody, every hoo-ha, you know, oh, Robin Williams and, you know, whoever came by. Um, she was leaving for L.A., and uh, she came up to me, and she said, well, I just saw your set, and you're very funny. I said, well, thanks. You know, we all like to say that to each other. Uh, and then she, she said, well, I'm leaving for L.A., and she pointed to, she had a friend and a, a VW, and it was packed to the skills and she left for LA to make her mark so that those are the only she was pleasant you know I think after a while um it got tired that a lot of us who were trying to make it as openly gay were seeing successes like hers and we resented it you know right Um, but she finally figured it out what was you know what was good for her and that's and that's what happened and uh were there other Openly gay men who were doing stand-up? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, we're all at the Rose. Uh, Kelly Cattell, the red-headed by, by Lucy Ball. Uh, uh, Danny Williams, who went on and had a, a pretty solid career uh, on the gay cruises, you know, RSVP. I did it once. I did the gay cruises once. Um, Sylvester was on board as a passenger, and then uh, Rita Moreno uh, was supposed to be the star attraction on the cruise. Like, and uh, she she canceled. So uh, Sylvester and I went up there. And, you know, it was mostly a Midwestern, semi-closeted crowd at the time. And uh, I don't think they got either of us. <laughs> Sylvester said, girl, they didn't get any of Tom Amiano's jokes. And me, I thought they thought you know, it was good. But, you know, we P- shared people it. People who had to be in international waters to be gay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then even then, you know. Um, Oh, so Danny Williams, um, uh, there was Romanowski and Phillips, they're very popular, uh, you know, mostly uh, singing. Uh, Mario Mandeli, um, I know, oh, Doug Hosclaw, well, uh, a wonderful writer, too, you know. We um, did um, a, a, quite a few shows together. We had fun, and the, our reviews were good from, you know, they would say, these guys need direction, but, you know, uh, what did we call it, the show? Oh, Two Queens in Search of a Motif. 
uh, that that ran a long time. So we, I like to do the sketch part. Susie Berger was a, was another one that was around, and then uh, uh, Janine Strobel and uh, Leah Delaria. Now um, uh, Janine, I still see, uh, uh, and Delaria is on um, Orange Is the New Black, uh, and of course Marga Gomez. You know, right? But I think I'm forgetting. Maybe one or two of the other men. And, and uh, my my guess is oh Scott Capuro, who sure. still who still isn't around. Yeah, who divides his time between here and London. Yeah, smart. We were given a gig. Uh, Capuro and I and two women, uh, Pittman, Marilyn Pittman lives in Bernal. Yeah. And uh, at the Improv in Santa Monica, uh, you know, four openly gay comics and stuff like that. And Capuro and I was, I don't know, backstage or hanging out in the bar, and this is an asshole. Um, comic came up and where is he now we don't know hey you're gay you can't do this you can't do that get, get out of here and all that stuff well we just laid him out you know uh, I always I always remember that because I I think Capuro uh, had a different viewpoint of how I dealt with the gay thing and you know I think for him for him to be confronted like that it brought it home that yeah you know this this is in a sense serious business you know um, you know whether you see it that way or not so there you go. And and after doing after sort of performing into the abyss at Tommy T's and Rooster Teeth Feathers, <laughs> like when you finally got to come home to the Valencia Rose and eventually to Josie's. Yeah, well, we created that space because of those other spaces not being user friendly. But getting in front of your own audience after that, it must have felt like you know miraculous. And, and, and well, yes, in the sense that I didn't think anybody was going to throw a chair at me. You know, we didn't even have a microphone. We didn't have a microphone for the first three weeks. And, you know, because we, I, you wanted to learn the craft, too. And it was hard to learn the craft when people are yelling, you know, fag or whatever. You know, how do you, how do you use a mic when you're on stage? What do you do? You know, well, your body shit. Um, so that Rose, act, that, you know, of course, afforded us that. Now what I'm going to say is going to make you laugh because this is what life is all about. All right, so we create our own space. We have the thing. And then the audiences are, are just as critical. <laughs> and, you know, we had, you know, we had a lot of walk-ins and a lot of women came. And so we we had uh, we we wouldn't do. Did you Tuesday, have the did you Tuesday have the, night? Were politically incorrect nights, but there never was a Tuesday night. That was our joke. Right. Because so you know we never did racist jokes. We never did that. But we were held to a very high standard by many people, and we get cis a lot. I still hate, oh, yeah. I still hate the cis. I try to come up with lines, you know, that would be good for that, and I always seem to fail. The best line was was uh, Bette Midler's, so I couldn't, you know, use it, but I admire it, which is, shut your whole minds up here working. Right. <laughs> so, but you learned from that criticism, too. But, and the, and that road, was, that, the, that's, the rose that's, was a bad thing. When it closed, that was really bad. And, that, and, the, and the hiss is uh, people who, who disagree. They just, they can't, they I, can't listen to the joke in, but without letting you know that well, they no, disagree with the Well, now you know what it was, topic. too, with the gay audiences, and that happened right away in the beginning. I would have gay people walk out of my shows if it was, you know, there were gay people attending, like, a more or less friendly but straight place because they didn't want to hear it. They thought I was making fun of gay people. They didn't, you know, it, it's kind of like... Um, some of the comics that we like still do kind of homophobic shit, and I just wish they'd get over it and just understand that we get the joke too, you know, and we could actually be more self-mocking and with more resonance than, I mean, even Dave Chappelle, who I like, I don't know why he still does the uh, Nance thing, you know, I mean, it's tired. Um, anyway, uh, they, some people just didn't get it. They were embarrassed by it. Embarrassed I mean, by me, embarrassed, yeah. It, it was, it was a, a new thing, and, yeah. you know, 
the, the, well, the, I don't the think they like drag to, queens. Had to come out and be judgy. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and then so the Valencia Rose closes, and then when did Josie's get up and running? A few years later. You know, we struggled. I did shows. I tried to produce a few shows at Great America, and in the beginning, we uh, sold out all the time. Um, but then, as I think the Rose closed and the other things in the comedy scene happened. Um, you know, Great American was were very nice people to work with, but they insisted on you could only do two shows. You couldn't just do one. And the audiences were getting smaller after the first couple of years. And then I, we worked at Theater Rhino. They tried to do a gay comedy. Even uh, the old um, uh, Elbow Room. What was the Elbow Room before it was the Elbow Room? It was always the Elbow Room. I know. It's been yeah, well, it was a dyke bar. It, it was a, I know, and anyway, um, we all tried various venues, but they never worked. And then, you know, Ron Lanza, uh, you know, and Hank Wilson did Let's, okay, kids, let's do a show. And he converted the Able Pen Company into Josie's Juice Joint. And it was an electric, wonderful, dysfunctional place. And uh, Ron you know, pissed a lot of people off and all that stuff. But he, uh, you know, he was temperamental, and, but he, he had great creative ideas and great energy and you know, he wasn't really in it for the money. Um, uh, and you could just say to Donald Montwell, uh, they're all gone now, uh, hey, Donald, I have an idea for a show. You know, I want to wear uh, funny hats and, uh, and, and uh, you know, blow up, a, blow up a piece of art. He goes, okay, fine. Uh, I'll schedule you for Saturday at 3. So, and then, <laughs> and, and, you know, Whoopi Goldberg got a little start there and um, uh, Lipsinka. You know, these people who had cult followings, but they were successful in making making a living. So it was a truly, yeah. truly a wonderful Things place. Things have worked out okay for Whoopi. Uh, let me see. Oh, Whoopi, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just love her still. I can't help myself. She's just, I just love her. And, and do you, you know, as you became an elected official, your rate of performance slowed down? Yeah, after a while. I mean, um, and the newspapers tried to make... Uh, a thing out of that, that I was inappropriate for the school board. Uh, in fact, one really weird woman, she still works for the Chronicle, Nanette Asimov, she's so reptilian. She actually followed me to a comedy gig out there in the boonies and then uh, wrote about it and wrote the jokes and uh, wrote the, the bluest ones, of course, to show how inappropriate I would be for, on the school board. You know, it was a little uh, Chronicle jihad. Um, and um, that that's familiar. that. Yeah, it was bad. Uh, in fact, I. But you know, I asked him, Redmond. I said, Well, if she keeps coming, what do I do? She said. He said, Well, most journalists do not want to be acknowledged. They don't want to be part of the story. So um, when I got up on stage and I saw her in the audience furiously taking notes, I said, Oh, hi. How are you, Nanette? Wasn't that you by the uh, standing by me at the urinal? I, I I didn't recognize you know like that. So. <laughs> And she still works for the Chronicle. Um, and uh, yeah, so the blend, uh, people were shocked. A Quentin, a Quentin Cop, you know, he's he's like obsessively uh, bipolar. I don't know what he is. He would write letters once a week to the bureaucrats saying, as a stand-up comic, I shouldn't be on the school board, and it would have all this Byzantine logic to it. I mean, I think people became obsessed. And the other thing, what it really was about was that I was a fag. That's really what it was about. And, uh, you know, we had a closeted um, superintendent then, and so there was a, a free zone there. 
Um, so it's very interesting that moving from comedy to the elected fields, doing both, and then I think the intrinsic personality is still there no matter what the, what the environment is. So when you're going to be funny, you're going to be funny. You know, it, it happens. And a lot of this stuff is, is far, you know, it is like um, uh, the, uh, who are the guys that do the Minister of Silly Walks and all that? Right, it's like Monty Python. Yeah, th there is a Monty Python, you know. And I, you got to remember, I came to it when I was 50. I didn't even start comedy till I was 40. Um, you know, and that, and that affects, you know, how you, uh, how you uh, present, I guess. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it, you know, in some ways, it's, it must be liberating because uh, to be a, a politician, comedian, because uh, there, there are no... The worst things that anyone could use against you, you've already said on stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's true. No, you do, you do get a thick skin. And, um, you know, I will say eventually, uh, not maybe immediately, and, of course, uh, I think this is more present than past, but... Um, you actually contribute uh, that, you know, your take, which could be sarcastic, which could be cynical, which could be telling, uh, offers relief to a lot of your colleagues. And they've told me that, you know. Um, and so in, so in a way, you're doing a service. And, you know, it's always, in America, it's always like black and white. You got, if, you, if you're this, you can't be that, you know. So this is why we have so much trouble with, uh, trans transphobia, you know, it's like, yeah, I can be elected. Yeah, I can work on policy. Yeah, I can stand up in front of a group and hopefully make them laugh for a while. You know, I think uh, in Europe, it's a little, they're a little more conciliatory to, I'm a civil servant, but I also just wrote Pablo Neruda right. <laughs> analysis in, in Belgian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people, yeah, I get asked this all the time about how, how I can be both a comedian and a union activist. It's kind of fun, though. Isn't and, it wonderful? And I'm like, I'm, the, I'm the same guy. You know, I... I you are, you definitely, you know, I mean, you are true to yourself, because I've seen you. It's true. Um, but if, if, if someone's not, then it's, it, it doesn't work for them, you know? Right. And, you know, and to me, like, in some ways, the things that I'm thinking about are the same. I'm yeah. thinking about what's wrong in the world and, you know, whose fault it is yeah. and how it's going to get better. I think... Um, you know, everybody has their gifts, and certainly you do, and I do, and that's not bragging like I'm a gifted person, but the reason that we fire back, or at least I fire back, is because you're, you're telling me, the world is telling me the things that I am gifted in are not valuable. Does that make sense? Right. So, you know, if you're being funny and you're a comedian, you're not valuable because you trivialize or you do, you know, which we never do. You know, except for except for Google, is that Juliana? No, no, it's not. Uh, uh, no, that's no, a guy. That's an old man. Yeah, well, don't tell her I said that. <laughs> and I can't see. So, uh, so there's, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. I know you have an appointment to get to. Did, so, did you see Dallas Buyers Club? Yeah. How did you feel about it? You know, it was troubling. Um, uh, it was a, definitely a mixed bag. I mean, there's the. You know, I love movies. So it's like the magnetism of some of the performances you know, very interesting. Um, I think we deserve more about that period in history. Uh, you know, it was a little Hollywooded up and it was a little uh, unnuanced. But what I felt tremendous relief about is 
that the politics of AIDS at that time was exactly as they were presenting it. The fucking Reagan administration, all that shit, uh, the criminalization of HIV, uh, you know, the forcing people to go underground, the uh, unavailability or accessibility to drugs, even though they eventually killed you. I, I never thought I was going to see that presented in the way that I experienced it. And so I was thinking if you didn't know that and you left that movie, you'd understand a little bit of uh, what uh, me and my you know, fellow generation experienced. Um, you know, the terror, the fear that you could go to Canada and get AZT. Of course, we all knew you know, that AZT probably wasn't going to... I remember Tim, uh, my late lover, in the kitchen taking his first to AZT. We had so much hope. So I liked the movie because of that, but, it, you know, these things require depth, and, you know, a movie is only going to do the time. But so the, the part that it communicated what it was like, uh, even though it was, you know, a somewhat exaggerated to, uh, and generalized, um, I, I liked. I think it made that statement. Why did you ask me? I'm always I'm Well, the reason I asked you about it is, is that I, um, you know, I, I agree. I, I, I like the acting, but what I, I watched it with my wife, and my wife is from Albuquerque, and I feel like, you know, my people who were here and in New York in that time period have a different connection to that history. Yes. She saw that stuff yeah. on the news, and I remember when people, I was in junior high when my friend's parents started dying. Um, and... And I feel like people just don't know both how terrifying it was and also how heroic the resistance was. It was good. The Bloody Marys, you know. The interesting when we talk about class, I guess we're going to end pretty soon, but <clears throat> AIDS being the equal opportunity killer that it was actually obliterated some class lines because the wealthier what we call A-gays, of course, were as vulnerable and suffered as much. And they were able to get to Feinstein. Feinstein, you know, had uh, no class consciousness. So there were the good gays and the bad gays. And, you know, sometimes she'd say stuff, listen, you want to think about comedy. Can you imagine Diane Feinstein talking about glory holes? She actually mentioned the I, I don't care. But, you know... They started to die, and so she started to act on it. One of the first mayors when, of all people. When, right? when Feinstein talks about her uh, about glory holes, it's her husband bulldozing a building. <laughs> 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 it's a new construction oh, site for Richard God. Bloom. So um, <clears throat> someday we'll talk about Harvey Milk and Feinstein. They really didn't like each other very much. It was, you know, it, it was uh, it was very amusing to see them. Um, yeah, so that's the thing about, you know, and maybe it's a, a first wave of pictures like this, you know. I, I see the normal heart is going to be uh, on HBO, you know, they're kind of reviving it. And it has that kind of anger there and then the, the horror of it. Um, humor always, though. You yeah. know, I, it's, the, it's the why no matter how um, politically incorrect she is, why I kind of like, always like Joan Rivers because of that, she calls it Holocaust humor, you know. There's always something that you can, and we always did because uh, it was like a little lifesaver, you know, a little uh, lifesaver. And, you know. and and if if there was going to be a movie about the the early days of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, what is the story that you would want it to tell? Um, I think you know the how how human it was, and how the medical profession um, had so many. 
uh, bunkers and silos and really, and that there was a big wake up call for people who felt really comfortable here in San Francisco. Uh, and they had apartments and some of them had a lot of money and all that. And none of it made any difference. Um, it must have been a little bit how the Jews felt when things were going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, bad stuff started to happen. There's a denial in the beginning. You can't believe how bad it's about to get. How, yeah, and then it even gets worse. So uh, kind of that parallel. But, you know, there was joy um, during that time, even though, you know, there was isolated islands. Uh, there was a lot of com uh, camaraderie. And um, I think there's going to be... Um, I think there's still a lot of scarring, what people call ghost wounds. Yeah. You know, you just you deal with it. Uh, as it's happening, uh, you know, you know, Harvey Milk was very good about this because, uh, you know, he <clears throat> was of the certain age, you know, the, I mean, the Holocaust was recent. And of course, he lost relatives. And he always talked about that, um, you know, in private conversation and, you know, how that informed him, too, uh, as well as his uh, his gay character. So I just like it to be, you know, this this show looking, um, I didn't have a lot of expectations from it. Um, but it is trying to, it's, it's moving slow, but it's trying to nuance. So I don't know in a movie, you know, if, if you could show that the nuances rather than just a broad stroke, um, right. you know, a day in the life or something like that, uh, that might even be more telling, you know? I, I, I feel like, I mean, one of the things that, I feel like the generation of the gay community that survived that first wave has a level of collective expertise and knowledge that was developed about facing death and grief that and, and organizing a community around an epidemic that nobody else has. Yeah, we had the, a skeleton, uh, you know, of a framework. Um, you know, there were people in the city infrastructure who were uh, openly gay and doing pretty well. I mean, everything was tenuous. And, you know, basically for me, uh, and my generation, like if I'm in my 70s now, so, you know, then we were in our 30s or late 20s, uh, it was the um, n n nascent gay movement, you know, which is what we called it. And that was, we're getting used to that and, you know, self-affirmation. It was still kind of new, though. And then the activism, particularly, uh, which I adored. Uh, and then uh, all of a sudden the AIDS crisis. So was the, the new feelings of affirmation and cohesiveness. And then, uh, you know, I suppose it's like, ah, oh, finally we can, we can relax. Boom, comes the asteroid. What? Who? What are these purple things? Who died? Did you hear about him? They don't know. It's gay cancer. Oh, they want to quarantine you. It was bad. It was bad. But it was dynamic. And you, st you still wanted to party hardy because you didn't want to deny that part of yourself. But after a while, it became, you know, well, if you're going to party, this is how you got to do it, baby. You know, there was feelings that uh, this was made up. You know, this was to, uh, uh, to oppress uh, gay men and it was just a made up thing. There was a lot of denial like that in the beginning. We were all scared, too. And then, you know, you overcompensate when you, you get be? scared. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and the drive was still there. You know, getting laid was the big thing of lib being... Liberated, baby, tell you. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the thing that was, you know, the most fun, if, if not substantive, you know, is pulled out. And you see, that's the way gay men hooked up and connected in those days, too. So, you know, they had to redefine their social relationships. Uh, well, great, Tom. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Yeah, thank you.
and that was the NATO sessions with Tom Mamiano. Uh, you can check me out doing stand-up uh, with the business at the Hemlock Tavern. You can follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. There may be a follow-up talk between me and Tom. After we recorded this interview, I ran into him at a political function, and he told me that, uh, that he wanted to tape a follow-up conversation about the history of camp as the indigenous gay form of humor. So uh, I have no idea what that holds in store for me, but that may happen. I hope it does. Um, meanwhile, uh, the NATO Sessions is produced by 3200 Stories. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Please like us and review us and share us around. It's executive produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, uh, theme music by DJ Real, and I will see you next time. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks a lot, everybody.